Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Buffer Placement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and shortly I'll be joined by Adam Grossman. On the show today, Adam has a fascinating interview with Brian Anderson. Brian is the president and chief financial officer of Beast Coast. Founded in July 2017, Beast Coast is an esports organization that focuses on player interests, well being, and happiness. The firm emphasizes quality content, entertainment, community engagement, while also elevating esports merchandise. The organization celebrates diversity and charm of gaming communities, large and small. Beast Coast represents 30 of the world's most talented video game competitors and influencers. And what is really cool about the organization is there are a lot of different things. There are a content engine, a marketing agency, and a pro team all wrapped into one. Many of our listeners, if they're like me, are really interested in esports and how it really has exploded and become such a huge industry and are looking to grow their knowledge around the space. And Brian certainly has that knowledge to share with everyone. So please enjoy Adam's interview with Brian Anderson. Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With me today is Brian Anderson of Beast Coast. Uh, Brian will talk a lot about his experience you know, uh, at Beast Coast, about what it's like to get involved with uh, esports, uh, some of the sponsorship opportunities that come in, uh, particularly from an esports perspective. But uh, Brian, first, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, and second, you know, if you don't mind giving a little bit of background about yourself uh, for our audience, that would be great. Yeah, no problem. Hey, Adam, you know, super happy to be here. Excited to talk to you today about, you know, what we're doing at Beast Coast Esports in general. And uh, yeah, just excited to, to chit chat. Um, so, you know, a little bit about my background, kind of a different path to esports, I think, than a lot of people um, that are in the industry. So my background is in finance and statistics. I graduated from IU um, in 2016. I studied finance and econometrics and public policy. And then I actually worked on Wall Street in New York um, at a few different investment banks doing M&A advisory and, and private capital raising work for about four years. Um, but the whole time, like even while I was in college, you know, my goal was always to, you know, work and, and manage an, an, a professional esports team. Um, you know, my honors thesis was about um, creating, you know, a suite of advanced sports statistics to be used in esports, which now is the backbone of Beast Coast's, you know, player acquisition strategy. Um, and then, you know, uh, but you know, I did m and for, for about four years. And then actually at, at a conference uh, for esports as, as part of my banking job, doing some business development work, I actually met the founder of Beast Coast. We really hit it off, did some pro bono invest, investment banking work for him to start their seed capital raise. And uh, it was through that process that I got involved and joined as president and CFO just about a year ago now. So a couple of points that came up there that, um, and one of the things we talked about uh, before we jumped on the air is you mentioned like uh, as a college student, you always wanted to get involved in esports, but you weren't sure what the pathway was to do that. So can you talk a little bit more? Obviously, esports is a relatively nascent part of the sports industry, but can you talk about how your thought process was and how you were able to achieve your goal of working in esports? Yeah, so uh, for me, you know, going to IU, mid the Midwest is frankly a really underrepresented area for esports. It's really difficult to get involved at a collegiate level um, in esports in the Midwest. I mean, if you're going to, you know, a, a UC school, you know, uh, anything in California, you know, even in New York, there's some opportunities to get involved as an intern or you know, things like that. Um, you know, especially if you have a pretty pretty practical, valuable skill set, whether it's you know finance or you know marketing or or even just you know kind of willing to just help out and do whatever because you know there's always kind of 
need for extra hands on an esports team uh, or even a company that kind of in and around esports. Um, so I guess for me, what I wanted to do, you know, I kind of saw very quickly, you know, there's, it's going to be very difficult for me to, to get a job in esports right at the gate. You know, I applied to Riot. I applied to a bunch of different you know, places with my finance degree. But what I realized was, you know, I needed some real experience if I wanted to work on the business side of esports. You know, the op side, I think, is a different question. You know, you can be a player manager or, you know, someone who, like, books travel, someone who, like, posts on social media, you know, somewhat easily, I would say, um, uh, though that's not necessarily the most lucrative you know, place to start a career, but it is a good place to start if, if that's something you're interested in. For me, I wanted to develop kind of a unique skill set outside of esports and then use that to transition to a leadership role kind of right out of the gate. So that's why, you know, I think starting a, a career in investment banking is a great way, frankly, to develop a skill set that's kind of universally valuable um, to a lot of different companies, you know, big or small. I worked in the lower middle market as a banker, and that's kind of perfectly, I think, positioned me to help out a company like Beast Coast. Um, so yeah, I guess really it was about, it, it's, I think it's two things, developing a skill that's unique, valuable um, in the esports community. Um, and then beyond that, it's all about networking, meeting people. I mean, I attended a lot of conferences, met, met people that way, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult nut to crack for sure. Yeah, you've mentioned some terms that maybe are unfamiliar to our audience that are more mm -hmm. familiar to people with a banking background uh, in terms of lower middle market, uh, mm -hmm. working at a lower middle market bank, talking about seed financing. Can you just describe what those things are for our audience? Yeah, for sure. So in, in investment banking, there's kind of a strata of different um, kind of sizes of firms. So, you know, at the upper end, there's the Goldman Sachs's, there's the Morgan Stanley's. These are called what are called like bulge bracket banks. They, you know, manage the largest financial transactions in the world. You know, they don't do an M&A deal unless it's, you know, upwards of, you know, $250 million. But there's obviously a huge market for M&A advisory services below that. Um, and that's where a whole different suite of investment banks come in. I worked uh, first at Mollison Company, which, which is a publicly traded bank and, and kind of on the cusp of being, being bulge bracket. And then I went to Sage and Advisors, which is very middle market. And then um, Portico Capital, which is just eight guys in an office in Greenwich, Connecticut. And that's actually a sports technology yeah. and data and analytics bank specifically. Um, and that's very lower middle market, you know, working only with kind of founder owned companies. This is, you know, the deals that we were working on were, you know, the largest financial transactions of, of our clients' lives, which I found very rewarding. And I also think if you want to work in an, an industry like esports, where most of the businesses are kind of at that startup stage, very, you know, young companies, lower middle market banking is a great way to kind of get that experience. So can you build on that a little bit? One, um, one of the classes in the research methods class that I teach is, is focused on asset valuation in sports and how understanding asset valuation at a high level, um, certainly not the level that you were looking at it at Portico, but two questions. One, what is the difference potentially between working in investment banking versus working in investment banking with a sports orientation and in a smaller fund? And then two, how has that shaped, you mentioned a lot of esports teams are in that stage where they're maybe at early, relatively speaking, early stage in terms of their capital raising or capital process. So how has your experience, how did your experience at Portico influence or continue to influence your role yeah. now, particularly as a CFO? I would say the biggest influence was just uh, somewhat similar types of work. So, uh, you know, I think being the president of, a, of an esports team is very different than being an investment banking analyst yeah, in, a, exactly. in a lot of ways. Exactly. Uh, but the, the one commonality I, I have to say is I, I deal with, you know, raising capital. Uh, yeah. That's like really my primary focus as, as the president of Beast Coast is we're in the middle of a seed funding round. 
um, right now, actually. Um, and we'll have some news, hopefully, to announce on that front in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, be on the lookout, audience. Um, uh, we have, we have some pretty exciting news, yeah, preemptively. Um, watch, check out our social media. Yeah. But uh, from that perspective, yeah, so what we would do at Portico is help, you know, young sports technology businesses, typically between, you know, I don't know, 2 million of EBITDA and, and 10 million of EBITDA, um, or, you know, type, you know, if they're that small, sometimes not even EBITDA, it's just a revenue multiple. Um, and we would actually help those businesses raise capital between, you know, 20 million and $100 million of, of usually uh, private equity, um, but sometimes growth equity capital as well. Now, my job at, Port at, at Beast Coast really is raising money at much smaller scale. You know, we're raising a couple million bucks, um, but the, the mechanics of that process are largely the same, right? It's, it's you know, you have to go to a, a network of investors, you have to come up with a reasonable valuation, build a financial model for, for your business, you know, put together some thoughtful projections, you know, based upon, you know, industry trends, you know, the, the historical trends of Beast Coast, you know, how, how we think we can perform in the industry. Um, and then, you know, as, as an analyst, right, you're not on the phone that much, you know, you're more kind of back office, you know, you're either cubicle crunching the numbers. My bosses were always the ones kind of pitching these deals to, you know, the, the investment community. Now, you know, instead of listening in on those calls and taking notes, like I'm leading those calls. So in that sense, it's, it's pretty rewarding. Um, but I do get to kind of flex some of those, some of those financial skills that I uh, developed when I was in banking. Yeah, and if we, you know, as much as you can talk about in terms of your financial modeling and projecting mm -hmm. and industry trends, you mentioned that. So, um, yeah, which is hard in esports, by the way. It's not yeah, a, it's not an industry where there's a ton of data. Well, I think that's a good point, and also like financial capital and capital raising is a huge mm -hmm. component of the esports industry, which I think some of our audience is probably not familiar with. So, how are you looking at um, growth projections? How are you coming up with those numbers? How are you looking at revenue and profit margin projections as well? Yeah, so I would say it's kind of twofold. So one, it's it's kind of macro, you know, industry-wide trends, you know, how quickly is esports growing? For us, you know, a huge percentage of our revenue, you know, something like 75% comes from sponsorship sales, um, which, you know, obviously you're very familiar with it at Block 6. Um, and uh, as, as part of that, you know, we need to, you know, figure out, you know, let's say five years ago, the biggest esports sponsorship deals that were being signed were, you know, mid six figures, you know, even the biggest teams in the world with, you know, millions and millions of fans, you know, we're only able to do, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar deals. Um, fast forward to 2020 and, you know, seven figure, close to eight figure deals are being inked kind of across the board for some of the largest and most successful teams. So those kind of industry tailwinds where, you know, maybe sponsorship deals are now, you know, 5X, 10X is what, of what they were just a few just a few years ago um and as part of that you know we we want to you know put that into our model but at the same time it's it's kind of combining that with a very granular pipeline driven approach where we look at okay here's the you know 20 or so sponsor relationships that we're currently you know working through on our in our pipeline with our sales organization you know my team does a lot of work in south america so we have you know companies we're talking to in north america companies in south america we, we actually just signed a really awesome deal with Four Loco to sponsor our, our fighting game, Super Smash Brothers and, and Mortal Kombat teams. Um, and so it's kind of figuring out, okay, at, at the top end, you know, what, what are the macro trends kind of driving growth in the industry? And then, you know, how do we use those trends to kind of upsell our existing sponsor relationships, you know, into the next year, as well as kind of developing additional sponsor relationships through, through working our pipeline. Yeah, we definitely want to go back to talk about sponsorship and the Four Loco deal in particular, because I think that's a really interesting deal, particularly since it was the company's first deal in the competitive gaming space. But mm -hmm. uh, before we jump into that, uh, I just I want to close the loop on the financing side in terms of, you know, one, 
Um, how are you sourcing potential, you know, investors? Obviously, there are more esports and esports dedicated funds, but um, how are you sourcing potential investors? And two, um, what's been the reception of your revenue projections and their understanding of the business, uh, either from traditional esports funds or maybe funds that people may not think of as traditionally investing in the esports space? Yeah, well, I guess that's sort of that's an interesting question. So for us, most esports dedicated funds are interested in kind of investing in a company probably in like a series a round maybe like you know at like the absolute earliest you know bc they they want to be a little bit more comfortable with the revenue you know closer to you know a couple of million dollars of, of run rate revenue and that's when they're taking taking an interest yeah. for beast coast which is still a little bit subscale to that um you know we're looking to do about a million dollars of revenue this year um we've raised capital primarily through angel investors um and then also a couple institutional partners our, our largest of which is andover ventures which is a family office in chicago for us you know it really is just about you know we, we think we have a great story to tell um in, in terms of finding investors it's just about getting in front of the right people and fortunately for you know myself and, and grant my my partner and the ceo of beast coast we have a pretty healthy relationship in the in the vc community and in the angel investor community just based off of you know my experience working in 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 on wall street for a number of years you know you reach a number of you know high net worth individuals who are active angel investors and then beyond that you know just the people we've met at conferences the people we've been able to reach out to you know linkedin's a powerful tool mm -hmm. um and yeah we've been able to raise a, a pretty decent amount of capital just kind of through word of mouth contacting people you know once you have one investor they want to introduce you to a bunch of other people to co-invest because you know kind of helps helps protect their money um and we have a great advisory board as well we have you know steven tamaris who's the former ceo of bed bath and beyond and a significant minority owner of the mets for example it's helping us so it's, it's all about you know the people that you connect with you know that kind of are willing to put their neck out and help help your business even when it's still at a stage of growth um and then so beyond you know how do we actually go and find investors which uh, there's kind of multiple paths of, of going about and doing that um you know what we're kind of focused on is um making sure that we're finding like value-added capital as well because at this stage of the business like that's really important to us and esports frankly is a pretty hot market so it's not that difficult to find you know angel investors especially if you're willing to take a smaller check size yeah and um that was going to be the last, really the last question on that is when you're talking to angel investors, what is their understanding of the space and what is their understanding of, you know, the revenue projections, profit margin oh, yeah. we talked yeah. about? So what is the, uh, what has been the reception from that community? So really, you know, the, the process of, of, of educating an angel investor who's not necessarily familiar with esports a number of ours already were which is great um a lot of them are you know high net worth individuals who have have children who are excited about esports and have learned about it that way or themselves are you know you know former gamers and just you know technologists who are really interested in the space so they have you know a base level of understanding so for us I, I find the most success when we, we come to, you know, potential angel investors with, you know, really credible story about, you know, hey, you know, we've built this great brand over the last two years. You know, we have this awesome fan base with, you know, really very small amounts of capital. We've been able to compete with some of the largest teams in the world. Here's our competitive success. And then give them kind of, hey, here's our, here's our model. Here's our projections. Here's sort of like an eight-week plan where here's 
you know, a couple month plan, you know, why don't you stick with us, continue this conversation over that period of time and watch us hit these milestones that I'm going to lay out for you now to show, you know, that our forecast is, is reasonable in the sense of, you know, we're hitting our sales targets on a quarterly basis or, you know, a monthly basis or whatnot. Um, and so once that there's kind of that level of credibility that's, that's established over time, then I think your, your modeling becomes a lot more useful. Though to be totally honest with you, at, at the stage that we're operating, um, a, a lot of it is the story. I mean, you just have to believe in esports. You have to believe in Beast Coast. You have to believe in you know myself and Grant as founders and and, and executives and in, in the company. Because really, when you're when you're doing seed stage investing, like the financial models are very speculative, and I think everyone understands that. Yeah, uh, having been in your position, the hockey so, stick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, one of the things that, re again, one of the ex reasons there are excitement in the esports space, and we'll talk about it particularly in the context of the current, you know, environment with COVID, but the, you, you mentioned sponsorship and the sponsorship model. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about, um, you mentioned particularly, we, talk, we talked already about Four Loco, but can you talk about the sponsorship and how sponsorship works in esports and then talk about your relationship mm -hmm. as Four Loco as a potential case study for how it can work? Yeah, for sure. So I think there's a couple ways to think about esports sponsorships. And for us, we've had the most success kind of going directly to businesses that um, maybe are overlooked by other esports teams. Um, mm -hmm. So for us, it's, you know, non, you know, Four Loco is a great example. It's a non-endemic sponsor. They've never been in esports before, which means the process of kind of bringing them into the fold and bringing them onto the, to the Beast Coast as part of the team involved a lot of education. Uh, you know, we met with them a, a bunch of times in Chicago, you know, where their headquarters fusion projects, you know, their parent company, um, kind of, you know, with their marketing department, figuring out exactly what their marketing goals are, their audience, their demographics, if it matches up with Beast Coast. And then the other thing is just, you know, how do we want to interact as far as our brand voice? that whole process and then you know ironing out the logistics in terms of exactly what do you want to do for us you know it's it's the bare bones of a sponsorship deal is you know a rights deal you have access to our players likenesses over the course of the contract you know we'll, we'll put together you know custom content for you obviously you know your logo will go in the jersey and then on all, all of our marketing materials our sponsored merchandise but then you know how can we go above and beyond just kind of the base level sponsorship and create what we think is a really creative custom campaign that kind of coincides with the the marketing objectives of a company like four loco so that was, I think, really what sets us apart from other, you know, esports brands our size is that creative kind of full service approach where it's not just slapping a logo on a, on a, on a t-shirt and, and calling it a day. You know, we want to do something, you know, more authentic for, for our partners. But I guess in, in that sense, for Loco, you know, being a great case study and we went directly to those guys. We contacted, you know, just their marketing staff um, directly and said like, hey, you know, we're an esports team. We're excited about, you know, doing a, an adult beverage deal. We think you guys, you know, would, would be great for us. And, you know, kudos to the Four Loco team. They were really open to the concept and, and, and spent a lot of time with us getting comfortable. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, there's also uh, opportunities that you can get through like marketing agencies. So a lot of the bigger brands, um, you know, the, the Kias, the McDonald's, the Chipotle's of the world, you know, the Mountain Dews of the world, even the big endemic esports brands that have been in the space for a long time, they typically do deals with marketing agencies that kind of work as intermediaries between teams and, and, and the companies themselves. That's not their core competency to go find out, you know, what's the right esports team to invest in? What's, yeah. you know, what's the right influencer to, to, to hook our brand up to on Twitch? So they go out and find external help. So for us, it's also a lot about networking with those agencies and, and making sure that Beast's Coast is on their radar when they, when they pitch deals to their kind of larger brand clients. So let's talk a little bit more about that last point. How do you make sure that Beast Coast, given, again, you know, obviously the space as a whole is new and then you're relatively new in the space. 
you mentioned some of the teams already in the introduction mm -hmm. in terms of some of the other competitive teams. So how do you get on their radar? How do you show that Beast Coast is a potential good fit, particularly for non-endemic brands? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, frankly, it's all about competitive performance. I mean, in, as you know, unfortunately, you know, Grant and I have never been pro gamers. A lot of teams, their their executives are actually former pros. They know a lot of you know people in and around the space that have you know they've you know a lot of former. You know, a lot of people that work in these marketing agencies are former sponsorship sales guys at esports teams that sort of worked alongside some of these players. Those players then end up becoming executives or salespeople, you know, become executives. They kind of know everyone. Um, for us, you know, coming from sort of outside the esports industry, at least for myself, Grant has, has a, a better network, I would say, in the actual industry itself, though it's grown significantly over the last couple of years working in it. For us, it was a lot about competitive success at the beginning to kind of get on people's radars. And then after that, it's, it's you know, deals like Four Loco where people kind of say like, whoa, like, okay, there's this new team on the block, Beast Coast, they're, they're doing deals with interesting companies. You know, these activations are doing well. You know, it's a lot about social media analytics and then kind of showing, hey, we have a real brand reach. We have a real fan base that, you know, likes to consume our content and, and, and interact with our brand. And then interacting and, and networking with those agencies in a, in a way that kind of um, shows that we can provide value to their clients uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. And, and you talked about this a little bit before, and I want to kind of marry two concepts that you talked about before in terms of having customized creative and customized active, uh, activations with quantitative analysis, whether it's uh, particularly with social media metrics. So mm -hmm. how are you using that in the, you know, when you're talking about the marriage of let's say qualitative and, and quantitative, how are you looking at that from a sponsorship perspective and as the business more generally? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the sponsor, frankly. I mean, some sponsors are incredibly data-driven. It's all about, you know, how many impressions can you get me? You know, what's the earned media value of the logo on my jersey, which, you know, is a topic we can kind of talk about, how, how you actually value those, which, again, is is pretty qualitative, frankly. I mean, there's some quantitative elements to it, and I think esports as an industry is becoming a lot more sophisticated with the, its valuation of, of, of media assets, and it's only going to continue to be that way. But as it stands right now, you know, some of the larger endemic, endemic players, they have a much more data-driven approach. It's a lot about click-through. It's a lot about, um, you know, the analytics on their ad spend when they use your players' likenesses, you know, things like that. It's, it's social media reach. It's, it's a view counts on custom, you know, content videos, things like that. But then some of the other players, it's all just about, you know, how easy is are your sponsorship sales guys to work with? You know, how great is your content team to work with? Like, it's a, I mean, really, it's a relationship business. Um, and then it's, you know, uh, an experienced, um, you know, marketing professional at, at one of these brands that have been in esports for a long time, you know, they just have their finger on the pulse of the industry and just through their own social media feed and kind of tracking, you know, some metrics, some more qualitative, you know, anecdotal evidence, they can kind of tell if, if a sponsorship activation is going well or it's not going well. So, you know, it's, it's all about figuring out exactly how an individual sponsor kind of looks at these deals then, and then kind of customizing your approach to that. I mean, we send out a monthly um, sponsorship uh, data summary to some of our partners that really like that. Sometimes it's a quarterly document and then some of them, you know, it's just a weekly call where you just kind of chit chat about, you know, what, what are we up to this week? What are we doing on social media this week? And that's kind of the, the way they prefer to do things. You mentioned, and you mentioned this a few times, rightfully so, about the competitive side and then using, at first using numbers and data to recruit athletes. So one, um, how have you used numbers and data to figure out which uh, esports athletes to recruit? And then two, how much does the competitive side of the business impact sponsorship revenue if yeah. the team is doing well? And how much does that factor in when you're talking to sponsors? Yeah. So one, so you know, starting at the second question first, the way our competitive performance makes a huge difference, and mostly it's a lot about 
breaking into top fours, top eights of these tournaments, that's when the viewership, you know, multiplies significantly. You know, for if you're, you know, last place in a tournament, you might only play five games. Uh, the viewership might be, you know, a couple hundred thousand. If you're in the grand finals of a major Dota 2 tournament, which is one of the games that Beast Coast plays, you know, millions of people are watching around the world and it's a best of five. So the games might last seven hours in terms of how many minutes, uh, like quality minutes, your sponsor's logos are actually on screen. That's incredibly important. Um, and then also just, you know, having the the value of, hey, you know, we're associated with winners. We're associated with your champions is, is incredibly important. As far as how we use data to actually scout players, it's, uh, I think it's an important part of our, our strategy. Um, you know, we look at a few factors when it comes to how valuable is a player for Beast Coast. Obviously, competitive success is a huge factor, but then beyond that, it's, you know, how great is their brand? Does it connect with the Beast Coast brand? It's some more qualitative factors. Um, and then obviously, their social media, you know, how, how well they perform there um, is, is important too. But as far as competitive performance, performance perspective actually my college uh, the, the foundation really for beast coast is my college honors thesis at, at iu um where i actually developed a suite of kind of advanced sports statistics i know the term moneyball is so overused and and it's really a cliche at this point but i think esports is an area where the advanced statistical community uh just isn't developed a few teams you know a great example would be team liquid has partnered with, with sap um to create like some some statistical tools for their dota roster and for their league of legends roster but that's like heat mapping and, and things like that which are more kind of software focused for us we've created a whole suite of advanced statistics based around um player efficiency um you know i don't want to give too much of our secret sauce away <laughs> i do think this is our one of our real moats in the industry frankly um but you know we're able to very accurately predict player performance using um kind of uh, a differentiated tool set, I would say, um, than some of the other teams. And yeah, for us, it's, it's really important. Um, and what we've done is kind of taken those in initial models I built in college, updated them, you know, dragged them into, into 2020. You know, the nice thing is when I originally built those, the hardest question was getting the data. There weren't um, a lot of great data sources for some of the stuff. <laughs> Actually, my original data set was from Reddit. <laughs> I actually, there was this guy who would always post on Reddit, you know, all this great, you know, esports data about League of Legends. He was actually a former pro. Um, and I, I just DM'd him one day and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm doing a college, for pro a college project. Like, can I have your data? And he was like, sure. And then another friend of mine built like a scraper uh, to take some data off a website called Oracle's Elixir. You know, some of the listeners, if you're old time League of Legends fans might know what that website is. It's, it's now very defunct. Um, but at the time, it was the best source for data. So at the time, I'm pretty sure I had the best League of Legends uh, professional League of Legends data set in the world, um, at least for, for North American and Europe, and uh, use that to gamble on games in college a little bit, um, and then, uh, you know, kind of uh, testing the, the efficacy of some of those models, and then, yeah, we've used that a lot in, in, in recruiting our, our Dota roster, and in Dota in particular, you know, our team is, is five Peruvian teenagers who, you know, they, they did well in the World Championship sort of as a Cinderella story last year, but, you know, they were largely unknown, after doing some analysis, we figured out like, whoa, like these guys are actually maybe the best Dota players like on, on the planet statistically, especially our carry player Hector um, is the most efficient. You know, he holds the records for most gold per minute in the game, which is a very undervalued statistic, um, especially in a game like Dota. And so we saw like, you know, these guys are massively undervalued in the market. And so then obviously, you know, you figure out, you know, the players' rankings in terms of their performance, but then you have to marry that with how much they cost. And so that's a whole other you know, level of analysis. So uh, there's a bunch of questions actually just came up. <laughs> Hopefully we have enough time to go through them all. But the first one is, you know, you, how do the athletes themselves 
you know, you said it's a relatively nascent part of the industry, right? Is using data and analytics and using a money ball type approach. So how do the athletes, what's their response when you come to them with your saying, you know, we've identified you or haven't identified you as a potentially top yeah. player for a game? Um, we don't really share with our players, like a lot of the statistical analysis when we do the scouting, just because I think that's sort of taking away a, a bit of our competitive kind of negotiating position being like, Hey, we think you're the best player in the world. Like, you know, if, you know, if we think you're the best player in the world and no one else does, like, I'm not going to tell that player that they're the best player in the world until the contract is signed. But in that perspective, yeah, we do use it a, a bit in our coaching, um, uh, somewhat, I, I would say I, we should use it more. Um, some of our, uh, some players are very open to that type of analysis. Some of them, you know, are, are less so, especially there's a bit of an ego there for sure. Um, but I, I think that the, I, I do think we could incorporate it competitively into some of our, you know, we, we don't really use a lot of models statistically yet, though this is something we're playing and working on. We're actually looking to hire a, a new data scientist to kind of update some of my work. Because frankly, that's not really my core focus of, any, anymore is updating our, our player recruitment models. Um, but what we want to do is kind of incorporate some of that, uh, uh, some of those statistics more into, you know, our pick band strategy, um, you know, how we actually, you know, move around the map during some of our games instead of just player acquisition and kind of incorporate it into our, our competitive game as well. Um, but I think we're, we're a few steps away from there, but certainly something that we're working on. Yeah, the reason I was bringing it up is with Moneyball, right, there was, and still now, right, a lot of the players have either positive or negative perspectives of analytics in terms of yeah. performance. And I don't, you know, obviously you said as part of your brand or at least mm -hmm. part of your go-to-market strategy is that you're leveraging data yep. and analysis. So, I, I just didn't know. Again, not from like a... So, yeah, yeah. Some of our players are really open to that feedback. Some of them are like, eh, like I just don't understand this. Like what is, you know, we created a proprietary metric called carry score, which is similar to like QBR and it sort of normalizes for, you know, position and, you know, in, in Dota, it's like basketball, there's five different positions, sort of like, you know, center, power forward, whatever. There's a carry who, you know, is the most gold intensive position. And so we've normalized for all of those statistics and you know, some people don't like that. They say, like, oh, you know, you're undervaluing my role as the carry. I'm supposed to be the star player, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's some resistance to some of those metrics. But um, I think as the esports industry develops over the next few years, teams that aren't using it will, will fall, that using statistical analysis will really fall behind in a, in a big way. And you can already see this. Like certain teams that are just signing players from like name recognition alone, you know, very quickly fall to the bottom of some of these, you know, more, even the most competitive leagues in the world. I mean, look at Flashpoint, you know, the Counter-Strike League, look at, you know, League of Legends. You know, if you look at the bottom of the table, I can guarantee you that those are some of the teams that are just, you know, not looking statistically at players' performance and are just being like, hey, here's like a player I recognize. Here's, here's a big social media following, you know, that I can, I can buy and, and use that to like, you know, sell my brand. But if you're looking at competitive performance, I mean, you have to look at the stats at some level. And the other thing, one of the other things you brought up in the uh, in your original conversation is about gaming in terms of what you were doing in college. So, and gaming increasingly seemingly is on the rise, particularly when it comes to esports. Can you just talk about the impact of gaming uh, as you see it, either before? And I don't know how much you can talk about it now, but what do you see as the impact of gaming on esports right now, and, and gambling on esports right now? Oh, gambling on esports. Yeah, yeah. Well, frankly, gambling on esports is a huge boon at least to the stage of esports right now, because it's the, probably the single largest sponsor category in terms of the amount of like dollars, like a company like Beast Coast can bring in. You know, we have a gambling 
partner rivalry, which is, you know, it's a, they're an amazing partner. They have a great service, you know, incredibly reputable business, um, you know, which is something you, you frankly have to look out for with, with esports gambling sites, but they're great. And, you know, I, I recommend anyone who's interested in any you're living in a region where it's legal to gamble on esports matches, um, you know, feel, free, you know, look into them. I think it, it actually might be legal in Illinois. I'm, I'm not 100% positive, but I think it, there's, a, there's a decent chance. I know that Illinois is one of the states that is is opening up those uh, opportunities uh, more quickly than other states. Um, and so for us, you know, I personally have no ethical issues with gambling. I'm a big poker player. Um, I've, I've always enjoyed it, uh, especially if you consider it a game of skill, which which I definitely do. I like gaming in all in all sense of the word. Big sports fan, big yeah. esports fan, play games online. I'm just an incredibly competitive person. So gambling for me is, has always been very fun. Um, and as far as the ecosystem for esports, I mean, there, there are pros and cons. The pro, obviously, you know, huge sponsorship dollars coming in. The con is... I think there is a bit of a stigma with gambling, um, especially because esports is for you know kids at some level. Especially games like Fortnite that market themselves more directly to children, you know, and that's something you know you don't want to get involved with until you know you're you're of age and, and know what you're doing and have some disposable income and and understand how to gamble um, you know responsibly. So you know, I I think that esports gambling will will be around for a long time. I think you know. You know, sports gambling has has been a major boon for the sports industry. You know, fantasy sports. You know, one day fantasy sports gambling on one day fantasy sports is huge as well. And I think all of those things will bring kind of casual fans and even just sports fans who just want another excuse to gamble on something into esports potentially and just grow our audience. And um, talking about growing audience, one of the things you mentioned before references Twitch, right? And now there are a growth in the number of platforms, whether it's Twitch, whether it's Mixer. Uh, whether it's YouTube trying to get more involved and Facebook, you know, tr exploring more gaming. So from your perspective, do you see the the, um, the rise in the number of distribution channels as a potentially positive, negative, or agnostic in terms of the, the growth of the yeah, sport? I, I think it has to be positive. I mean, I think Twitch is a great platform. You know, the vast majority of my players stream on Twitch, though some of them do stream on Facebook Live and some of them on YouTube. Um and I think Twitch, you know, frankly, is the best platform technologically. It has the biggest user base. I understand why most people use it. You know, our, we use it, Beast Coast Channel. You know, we broadcast a lot of a lot of things on there. But in a world where there's a monopoly platform for this, uh, for for esports, it really I think harms the industry overall to have that lack of competition. In the sense of, you know, the biggest a few factors. So one, you know, Twitch does a great job of improve, improving their platform. Um, but I think spurned, spurred by competition with companies like Mixer that have huge backing from you know, companies like Microsoft, I think they're going to continue to add features, which is just better for everyone overall. And then beyond that, um, because Twitch is a monopoly supplier, really, at, at this point, you know, YouTube Live is sort of comp competing a bit now, actually, and Facebook a little bit, though Mixer, I would say, is not, not performing that well. Um, the issue there is that they own... The, the streaming rights and the broadcast rights for traditional sports is a huge chunk of the pie in terms of how traditional sports is monetized, right? I mean, you always hear about these multi-billion dollar deals that you know, the NCAA or the NFL or the NBA are signing with, with these TV networks for, to provide you know, exclusive broadcast access. And that's you know, 75% maybe even of, of some of these, these sports leagues revenue. Um, for esports, that doesn't exist because there's no competitive market for the broadcast rights because if you don't stream on Twitch, you just don't have an audience. And that's a big problem. So I think, you know, esports monetization has a long way to go. Um, I think one of the factors that will contribute to that the most is if YouTube or, or Facebook or Mixer becomes a true competitor to Twitch and there's like a bidding war essentially 
you know, for those broadcast rights. You know, I think Riot Games, you know, uh, you know, we don't play Riot Games games. We don't play League of Legends uh, yet, or we don't play Valorant yet. Um, but at the same time, their deal with, with Google to broadcast, um, excuse me, um, what, what am I saying? It's Blizzard, not, not Riot. Blizzard's uh, deal with, with YouTube to broadcast the Overwatch League, excuse me, um, on YouTube's exclusively and not on Twitch uh, has limited their viewership for sure. But it's also, you know, I think good for the industry as a whole to have one of like the marquee, um, you know, content series, you know, one of the marquee leagues in esports mm-hmm. um, go to a different platform just because I think it's, it creates a bit of a bidding war between Twitch and, U- and YouTube, which I think is only good for esports teams, tournament organizers, and the whole ecosystem as a whole moving forward. Do you see broadcast rights and distribution rights as a growing and important revenue stream for you, for you guys, or do you think it's still difficult to tell? Well, the problem for us is that we don't host the events, right? right. So if you're, I mean, the, just the industry isn't set up that way. If you're an right. NFL team, you know, you are ownership, you have an ownership stake in the league. And so from that perspective, you know, the broadcast rights, you get a chunk of that. When we compete right. in a Dota tournament, we don't see any of that revenue. That's where a league like Flashpoint, which is a CSGO league, is really interesting because it's actually one of the first ever team-owned leagues so every team gets you know some healthy percent of revenue share and they also own an equity piece in the actual company itself um and so that perspective that's where broadcast rights can start that revenue can start trickling down to teams and then even to players and then you know i think that's great for the industry as a whole you know if all the profit in the industry is just being held by streaming platforms and game developers that's a problem that's not sustainable so i think team-owned leagues or or even like partially team-owned leagues where there's just a significant rev share, which I think a lot of leagues are kind of moving towards, um, you know, Rainbow Six, League of Legends, um, Overwatch a bit um, are doing that. So I think, you know, the future of gaming and esports will be a system where teams do get a piece of those broadcast rights. Um, and teams just need to realize like, hey, without us, you know, we're an important part of the, of the equation. We have some leverage here, but I think teams need to kind of work together in that sense, which has been and hard when it is really scrappy. There's a lot of teams. It's a very competitive space. But I think as the industry matures, the leader of the pack, you know, the top 10, 20 teams, you know, will kind of work together to, to capture more of that revenue in the future. Yeah, and, um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to talk about, um, particularly whether in this context or just in general, is the impact of COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously that whether it's on, you know, some of like um, NASCAR and iRacing saw some of the highest television ratings that it saw. So maybe, you know, some at least demonstration that live or linear television could be a potential distribution channel for esports, uh, at least during COVID-19. But one, you know, how has COVID-19 impacted distribution? And then two, it, it, what's been the impact uh, of COVID-19 and the coronavirus on your business overall? I mean, it's definitely had an impact, frankly. I, I mean, relative to stick and ball sports, esports is doing way better. I mean, we can convert a lot of our live stadium style events yeah. to online events, but they don't convert one to one. I think the, the viewership is significantly less. There's just not the level of kind of prestige that goes along with a live that goes along with a live stadium event when you just hold it online. There's technical issues. The biggest of which is, you know, it. You would think, you know, anyone in the world can play video games with anyone else. But if you understand the technical limitations of these games, you know, that's not the case. You know, our guys in, in Lima cannot play against a team in Europe in Dota 2 because the latency and lag between the servers is just too high, right? So you can hold, you can only hold domestic tournaments or, you know, we can play in North American tournaments. Um, but we still have some, some, some ping issues, which is unfortunate. It hurts our competitive performance. So really, you can't perform at the absolute apex in, unless you're on a LAN setting. Um, like like at a stadium style event, 
but you know what we've been able to do is kind of convert some of our our efforts from you know working on those big events to smaller you know sponsor activations like fan you know fan games um you know we, we've hosted we, we started the uh professional pokemon league professional VG, vgc pokemon league called called the coastal league just as a way of providing some awesome you know content for our fans to watch we have a professional pokemon player on our roster james bake who's who's amazing you know top player in the world so we use him kind of as the as a focal point to start that league we're doing a bunch of you know late night streaming events with with our players where they're you know playing a bunch of their games with their friends or hosting little tournaments things like that um and for Four Loco, our latest thing is Beast Coast Happy Hour, which I encourage all of you to check out. You know, just grab a Four Loco, <laughs> sit down, play some games with the Beast Coast boys. You know, a couple times a week. You know, it, you know, hang, it's essentially hanging out with your friends, drinking, playing games. But you know, it's what, what we can do during COVID. So that's kind of the best, the best we can do. I think we have to just be creative. The nice thing is our our sponsors have been amazing. So right, we kind of promised them like, hey, you're going to have visibility of these stadium events. That's not happening for four or six months. Um, but they've, they've stuck with us in, a, in an awesome way. We've worked together collaboratively to create activations that we can do now. Um, and we're, we're still gearing up for the rest of the, you know, land style season once kind of COVID we think comes down and, and different countries start opening up again. But the impact has been pretty significant. On, on, so that's kind of negative side. On the plus side, uh, streaming, uh, massive growth, 100% growth since compared to you know q2 of last year on, on on platforms like twitch more people are sitting at home playing and watching video games than ever before but it's not even close the the player base on gaming platforms like steam is is massively up i mean i'm playing a ton more games i'm, I'm stuck at home um and so for us and also you know as a company we can work from home which is nice as well you know our video guys you know we have sponsored you know pcs that are super nice all of our all of our team can work from home um, in a pretty productive way. So uh, I would say there's a silver lining in the sense of more people are playing games, more people are watching esports, but it's hard for us to do some of the sponsor activations that we wanted to do before. Yeah, just before we uh, jump forward, and we're getting towards the end of the time, but um, can you just explain what uh, latency lag, LAN, is to an audience who maybe doesn't understand those terms? Uh, yeah, so LAN is just local area network. That just means when you hook a bunch of computers up together, um, you don't have to wait for, you know, typically when you're playing a game, you know, you're playing, you send an input into the game, it goes up to, you know, a it goes to a server and then it comes back to you. That kind of tells you whether, you know, I shot my gun, I clicked my mouse. It takes some amount of time to tell the server that I did that. And then it's some amount of time to go to the other person's computer that I shot and say like, okay, you got shot and then go back to me. And the, and the, the, the geographic difference between where you live is a huge factor for how long that takes because it's like physically where the servers are located in some warehouse that makes a huge difference um and certain games they have better you know net play and online um systems than, than others uh for playing globally but really you can't play like i can't play any game against someone in china effectively unless it's like a card game and it doesn't matter how long like if i have like two seconds of lag it doesn't matter um but when you combine all of your computers in a land setting just hook you know computers right up to each other the lag is is essentially zero so you can you can interact with with the game in a, in a completely different way you know they call it ping which is just the amount of time it takes um from one piece of data to go to the server and back to you that's that's like a ping um and so you know you can get your ping down to 0.6 which is like 0 0.06 milliseconds i think or 0 0.006 milliseconds really really fast in a land setting but if i'm playing someone in china in league of legends for example my ping might be you know a thousand which means one full second of delay between clicking a button and it actually doing what i want which is essentially you know if you ever play video games you know that that's essentially unplayable 
And then you, one of the things you've talked about is your own personal experience playing games. So how, particularly when it comes to esports, how important is it for the, the, you know, the leaders of the organization to actually either be gamers or play games or play the games that uh, at least most of their athletes are playing? I think, I think that's a great question. And I think this is understated trend in esports that not enough people are talking about in the sense of a lot of the newer executives in esports that are so a lot of esports teams for example are being bought by private equity firms uh, they're being bought by venture capital firms or they're being bought by professional sports teams and what they're doing is they're firing the endemic leadership that founded the team and kind of brought it to you know where it is today and then they're injecting in like traditional sports executives who might have, you know, they might have two decades of sponsorship sales and like player management and sports management experience, you know, 10 times what the founders of these companies might have, or even, you know, middle management of these companies might have because they grew up with the business, but they just don't understand esports. And they think that traditional sports and esports are the same way. And that's why a lot of esports teams, especially during COVID, are really struggling. And a lot of teams, that in, in injected huge amounts of money. I mean, $50 million plus into esports have essentially no fans and have no social media following and just don't understand how to have an authentic you know, brand voice and, and, and create an authentic community within the esports space. And, and frankly, no amount of money can buy you that if, if you're just doing it the wrong way. I mean, best example of this is, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade, but if you look <laughs> at a few teams in you know, the Overwatch League, for example, there are a lot of traditional sports owners that came in uh, that that thought you know it was I mean it was marketed to them as hey this is the first esport that's going to work exactly like traditional sports here's a great way of getting in with your expertise they spent a ton of money and they haven't been able to build a fan base there and so I think it really does matter for the leadership of these companies to know the gaming space to play the games at some level you know you don't have to play a ton and frankly when I joined Beast Coast I actually was playing less video games for the next like six months than when I was an investment banking analyst working 90 hour work weeks because I was just so busy. But at least I like understood the communities on some sense. And actually, I don't play Dota, and that's our biggest game. So, but you know, frankly, Grant is like you know has ten thousand hours in Dota. So, eh, <laughs> whatever. But it, it worked out. Um, but you, you have to play games at some level to understand you know what this community, the esports community, is, is kind of all about. Um, and I think that's that's a huge factor that people undervalue. And this goes to the last question because I think in and of itself could be an interesting podcast. What you just said, but. Um to your, the last question, which is our students, you know, they're wondering mm -hmm. how they get involved in esports, how they can become, you know, potentially um, get involved in the leadership and management and business operations mm -hmm. side of the business. Uh, one of the things you had mentioned um, is the research you did in school and how you did projects in school. So can you talk more about mm -hmm. what was your thought process on doing that? Why did you decide to do that? And how did you um, leverage that experience yeah. into the role that you're in today? So, I mean, really, I mean, I, I don't think my, my experience in college, frankly, like contributed that much to me being able to work at Beast Coast. Really, what, what mattered more than anything was, do I have a skill set that's universally valuable and is applicable to esports? And do I have some knowledge of esports, right? So if you're a viewer watching this and you love esports, you're a huge gamer, but you want to work in the industry, my best advice for you is to just develop a practical business skill. Like, you know, if you're a finance major, learn how to value companies. You know, I don't even necessarily think it might be the best advice for people who want to work in esports to start their career in esports. I actually think starting my career in investment banking, just doing media and technology banking, positioned me better to be an esports executive than 
probably working in esports from like a junior sales role or like a player management role would have just because you know there's a there's a lot of people that like video games and play video games and follow games and have knowledge of of the scene right there's tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of of hardcore esports fans but how many of those hardcore esports fans like have a cpa like well okay now now this venn diagram is is shrinking like very very fast and you know what an esports team needs at scale they need cpas who like understand okay how does prize money work in esports like is it counted as revenue is it counted as you know, accounts payable because you have to pay some of it to your players. Like, you know, there's, or like, you know, we, like, I need a lawyer. Like, Beast Coast needs a lawyer. I need a lawyer that understands gaming more than I need a lawyer, you know, more than I need, you know, another social media person who just, like, you know, is on Reddit a lot and, like, follows, follows esports. So, so I would recommend get a valuable skill, a professional skill, accounting, law, finance, marketing, um, Get a couple of years of, of industry experience in or around esports. I mean, if you can work in media, great. If you can work in esports, great, but not necessary. And then use that experience to transition to esports. And while you're working these other jobs, while you're in college, just network. You know, schedule informational interviews with people. Just be like, hey, I want to chat 15 minutes of your time. I just love to learn about, you know, what you're up to. I get messages like that all the time. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm almost always happy to do it if the emails are, you know, you know, cordial and, and, and thoughtful and, and the person has obviously spent a little bit of time like researching what we're up to and is asking good questions. And I think most people in esports, you know, will, will probably be the same way. Um, obviously it's harder to find contact information for certain, for certain people. Um, but yeah, DM people on Twitter, hit people up on LinkedIn and just say like, Hey, I want to learn more about what you're doing, develop a skill set. And then once you've developed that skill set, you can reach back out to those people, you know, years later even and, and, and connect and say like, hey, I can add value. Yeah, I think one that's a recommendation that we talk about in our classes is to learn skills, learn, understand the business and understand mm-hmm. how it works um, and then use that as a way in to get jobs. But two, um, you know, I, I think that's a good place to leave it because I think that's something that we really do try to emphasize with our students. So, Brian, we want to thank you for the time. It's been a very interesting discussion. Great um great to have you on the podcast and um you know i think the students really get a lot of value out of learning both about the esports but then the business of esports as well great well thanks for having me adam really appreciate it and it was a really fun conversation yeah take care